Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. Today's topic is on a common term used in Aikido, ki. In English, the word means energy, although that's not really a good translation. Even people who do not study Aikido are curious about what it is, what it means, and if it is real. Is there some kind of hidden power that is available to us if we learn about ki and how to control it? Unfortunately, there is no clear consensus about what ki is, how exactly it works, or even if it exists at all. What I present here is not meant to provide you with my opinion dressed up as definitive fact. I will explain as many of the perspectives that I've heard about ki as well as my perspective on it. You can make up your own mind on what makes sense to you. I mentioned in a previous podcast that a common mindset these days is that people are drawn to simple thinking. You could call it binary thinking. Complex issues are broken down into sound bites where something is either good or bad, right or wrong. In this case, that key either exists or it doesn't. And people will argue endlessly trying to defend their opinion or disprove contrary opinions. From my experience, key is so poorly defined that you cannot even get to the point of arguing whether it exists or not. This makes discussions of it extremely difficult to have. I'm going to try to get to the bottom of it and do so in practical terms. The majority of my exposure to the term ki came via learning Aikido. I had heard the term before, but didn't have enough exposure to know what people meant by it. It turns out more exposure to people who studied ki and claimed to understand it didn't help much because of the radically different opinions that each of them had about it. As I took up learning Aikido, the subject of ki came up fairly often. I should note that my Aikido lineage comes down through Koichi Tohei, who is a huge proponent of the usage of ki. Even those who come from other lineages use the term ki to refer to aspects of movement. It was not unique to Tohei. This makes sense as Tohei was the chief instructor of Aikikai's Hambu Dojo for many years. He clearly had an impact on students under him. My experience initially was that ki meant energy and suggested that the proper usage of ki would result in additional stability and power. Being a very pragmatically minded person, I wanted to know more about Ki. When I tried to get firm answers about it, the answers themselves were either elusive or circular. They were anything but clear. We students were shown Ki demonstrations and were guided to practice them among ourselves. We all found success to some degree or other with altering our movements slightly to get much better stability and power. But I asked myself, are the improvements happening because of the manipulation of some kind of energy? Or are they coming from slight physical alterations of body alignment, weight shifting, muscle control, and movement? Maybe it was my inventor and engineering mind kicking in, but I felt the energy explanation just wasn't cutting it. The best example of this is a classic key demonstration called the unbendable arm. It's a staple of the key society, and you can find videos of instructors demonstrating it. I even use it with my students, and they can all feel the difference with improved body control and power when using it. Let me explain the exercise for those who may not be familiar with it. You take two people, let's say me and a student. I stand in front of the student, just off to one side. I reach out and I set my wrist on his shoulder. He reaches up and clasps his hands over my elbow, then gradually pulls down on it in an attempt to bend my arm. He pulls down with more and more strength to see how much strength it takes to bend it. If done correctly, it is so difficult to bend the arm that it is almost impossible. That is, unless the student is much stronger than I am. Now, I'm extremely wary of parlor trickery and the martial arts are filled with it. The unbendable arm definitely looks like parlor trickery, but it is not. 
the explanation that it is your intent or energy which makes the difference between your arm remaining extended or folding up under pressure is somewhat valid. It's not your intent alone, though. Your intent is part of what makes your arm unbendable. Your body must activate properly, which is all physical. I believe this is Tohei's point about the mind and the body working in unison. The way I was first taught this exercise, and even how I show it to my students, is in two steps. First step is that I clench my fist and make my arm rigid, as strong as I can. Then I have the student attempt to bend my elbow. It usually bends with enough effort. Then step two. I unclench my fist and relax the arm, and extend my fingers as though reaching out well beyond him. Then I have the student try again to bend the elbow. He feels a much more relaxed arm, but it's almost impossible to bend. I then explain that this has nothing to do with any kind of supernatural force. It is entirely physiological. From a muscular standpoint, when I clench my fist and strengthen my whole arm, I'm engaging two contradictory sets of muscles. One set of muscles is to extend my arm, the other set is to retract it. Both are pulling strong. When he goes to bend my arm, he's working against the muscles that are trying to extend my arm, but he's working with the muscles that are trying to bend it. Basically, one set of my arm muscles are actually helping him bend my arm. As with life, we are often our own worst enemy. So what changed when I unclenched my fist, relaxed my arm, and extended it? Muscles in my arm engage when he applies pressure, but when I think of extending, then only the muscles needed to extend the arm are firing. He no longer has the assistance of the muscles in my arm which are trying to bend it. The difference is remarkable. So why all the talk about what seems to be a supernatural force or energy? I've heard even the clenched fist described as having your key going in a tight spiral ending, following in a path from your wrist through your hand and your fingers, ending in the palm of your hand. Well, this is colorful imagery, but it really isn't accurate. To me, describing it in this way is far too vague to be an effective teaching tool. The mind does play a huge role in being able to control your body well, though. If you put your mind on the amount of pressure coming down on your elbow, you will find it difficult to keep your arms straight. When you look past that and focus your mind out past your partner, it becomes much easier. There is definitely something to mental focus. It is subtle and it seems like nonsense, but it is definitely true. An excellent analogy comes from riding a bicycle or motorcycle, and I do both of these. The relationship your body has to the bike is complex and subtle. You are using very slight weight shifts to control the direction of the bike. Where the mental focus comes into play is where the bike goes based on where your mind is. The bike will go where you are looking. If you're riding and you see a pothole coming up, you're tempted to look right at it. It's a threat, albeit a mild one, to you and the bike. You would prefer to go around it than slam into it. As you approach, if you stare right at the pothole, nine times out of ten you will ride right through it, even if you don't want to. The body is guided by the mind. If you are thinking of that pothole, chances are you're going to hit it. Experienced riding trainers will tell you to look exactly where you want to go, which is beside the pothole. Don't look directly at the pothole as you approach it. This is a bit harder to feel on a bicycle unless you're going fast, but on a motorcycle, the lesson is very easy to experience. One might doubt it, but go through it a few times and you can see the results. There is no parlor trickery involved, and this is an important riding method to adopt. The same goes for Aikido. With technique, there's a proper place for mental focus. The more you see the principles expressed in other areas, the more universal that principle is. 
One way Key is taught that I found particularly infuriating is that it is entirely based on how you feel. That is, that you will have a better body alignment merely by thinking pleasant thoughts or having a peaceful attitude. This description has a sliver of truth, but is largely garbage. It's taught by pacifist-type instructors who are so enamored with kindness that they believe a benevolent attitude somehow grants their bodies additional strength or power. This is parlor trickery, and you can see how they physically alter their movements during these demonstrations to support their presentation. The result is sophistry, which is presenting something that is false, but presented in a way that makes it seem plausible. The sliver of truth that I refer to in regards to attitude is that your attitude can interfere with your technique. That is not the same thing as making it better, though. That's a huge difference. Being in an angry or combative mindset can lead not only to bad judgment and rash decisions, but it can also make you add too much strength to your movements. Remember what I said earlier about the extra muscles in my arm that were firing, which actually helped my student bend my arm? My poor focus actually helped him. If I engage more muscles than I need, chances are I'm either helping him or hindering my own movement. That might make me slower or less powerful than I need to be. However, if I let my mindset slip into thinking puppies and hot chocolate, then I will not have the sufficient focus to deal with violence. Being peaceful is the goal, not the process on how I get there through extreme adversity. Jumping back to the bike analogy, staring up at the sky to admire the clouds is not a reliable way to avoid potholes. I have to focus on exactly where I want the bike to go. Often, key is described as your mindset and attitude. That is at best only mildly accurate. The idea that you need to give in and let go against an attacker is flat out wrong and will result in disaster. Your mindset needs to be on your survival and staying calm so that you can be smart. It's your mental flexibility combined with a strong intent to survive that will lead to success. Another school of thought regarding Qi is one which is downright absurd. It is the idea that Qi is some kind of energy, like electricity, which can be summoned and channeled to spectacular results. There are some charlatan martial arts out there who claim practitioners can knock people out without touching them, learn to float or levitate, or throw invisible balls of Qi at an opponent to knock them out. This is utterly ridiculous and complete nonsense. If someone tries to sell you on this concept, they are insane and you should treat them like a crazy person. Do not get seduced into thinking there are such magic powers which will allow you to do incredible things. The only magic will be seeing your money and time disappear as you will be left sometime in the future wondering what happened to them. In doing martial arts, including competing full contact for almost 30 years, I've never seen one shred of evidence that there's anything like a magical key energy that gives people superhuman abilities. I've seen incredible instincts and intuitions which are remarkable, but in every single case there is a physiological explanation behind what is happening. Here is a story about the pursuit of the supernatural power, and I think it relates to the pursuit of key power. It is a true story of Harry Houdini, the famous magician. Now Houdini was a phenom in more ways than one. Really he was like the Bruce Lee of the magic world. Not only was he a remarkable magician, he was in superb athletic condition a physical specimen. Like Bruce Lee, this coincided with an iron will to succeed at everything he did. Houdini was able to do what his contemporaries could not, through sheer force of will, cunning, and amazing physical feats, which he combined together to make compelling performances. Houdini had an extraordinarily powerful and undying love with his mother. They were extremely close. When she died, it devastated him. 
he turned his iron will on trying to contact her. He sought out psychics and mediums in a desperate effort to talk to her, and even more, to hear from her. For any normal person, he probably would have found great peace in what these people told him his mother said. But his cunning and experience with fakery let him see through all their tricks. He quickly started exposing them for the frauds they were and was disgusted that they were cheating honest people who were hurting. Houdini came to the conclusion that there was likely no way to penetrate the wall through to the afterlife. But the story doesn't end there. He promised his wife that should he die before she did, that he would find a way to contact her. If anyone could do it, Houdini would likely be the one to succeed. Sure enough, he died tragically before his time and his wife lived on. She had agreed to put a candle in the window every Halloween night, which was Harry's birthday, and she did this for years after his death. Before she passed, many years later, she admitted that never once had there been any indication that Harry succeeded in contacting her. She always kept looking for even the most subtle signs, such as furniture being moved, book pages being turned, or other such ghostly occurrences, but there was absolutely nothing. If the mighty Houdini was powerless to cross that divide, perhaps no one can. This is very much how I look at the claims of Key being a supernatural force of some kind. People who believe it in that way do so because they desperately want to believe it, not because it is true or the results are repeatable. There are plenty of parlor tricks and fakery which are repeatable, but they are built on the power of suggestion, human behavior, and mental manipulation. These things are valid but have rather limited application and are not what I would want to count on to save me in an assault. Lastly, I will share my current opinion on what key is. I'm not putting my opinion forward as being a better definition than any others, just the one that makes more sense to me than the other definitions that I've heard. The word key, or any single word, is insufficient for describing what is going on in the human body to perform at an extremely high level. Another term which is often used is internal martial arts, and it's better because it's less vague than key or energy. So what are these trying to describe? To me, these are shorthand terms for the intricate and precise use of probably the most amazing machine in the universe, the human body. Our bodies are incredibly complex, and manipulating them to perform takes incredible control. Any movement you make consists of dozens, if not hundreds, of small and large muscles and tendons. For a particular movement to be as effective as it can be, you must use each muscle exactly in the correct way. This is very difficult to do and takes a lot of practice. It's nothing you can think your way through. You have to be able to feel and detect minute inputs of balance, pressure, and relaxation to hone your movements through practice and performance. Maybe that description sounds a little academic. Let's look at this in terms of a punch. There is far more to a punch than your arm thrusting out with a fist at the end of it. You punch like that and you will land with no power whatsoever. For a punch to be solid, you need to use your whole body. Not every muscle in your body, but the exact set of muscles all over your body working in perfect concert to deliver maximum power. Just like the unbendable arm exercise, the muscles which would impede your motion must be relaxed and you can only use the ones you need to get the correct motion and the body structure behind them. You must do the same thing with the body's base, as this is what delivers power. Hip rotation, both horizontal and vertical, come into play, as well as how you use the weight of your body to help deliver its power via inertia and gravity. When you get all the aspects right, you will notice an amazing level of power delivered, and it will seem smooth and not require immense effort. When your movements are not quite right, you'll feel something is off. 
you won't deliver as much power and you can feel that there is inefficiency somewhere. Perhaps you will feel exactly what is causing the problem, but maybe not. There are many different sets of muscles which determine superb body dynamics, including integrating your breathing with your movements. Breathing is far more than the air going in and out of your lungs. Breathing is controlled by the diaphragm and done properly affects the muscles of the torso down to the pelvic floor. All of this is far more than just breathing. It's controlling and using all those muscles in the right way to get the maximum effect from your body movements. Often when people can do this extraordinary level of efficient motion, they still have remarkable difficulty in describing exactly how they do it. The shorthand way of describing this might be that you have key or you don't have key. I think this is how the term key has come to be used and why it really makes no sense. If I perform a technique and you tell me that my key is not strong, it does nothing to tell me what needs to be addressed. Therefore, I don't use this kind of language when teaching, as it's unproductive. Just telling somebody they are wrong doesn't give any tangible direction for how to correct the issue. I believe the usage of the term key is largely a teaching crutch. It's easy for an instructor to tell a student that they are doing it wrong. It takes remarkable skill as a teacher to show them exactly how to correct their movements. At least, it's easy in the beginning when the mistakes are big, such as put your left foot forward, not your right foot. But what happens when the mistakes are so small that they are hard to describe or teach? Rather than build solid teaching methods, instructors will just say things like, let your key flow, or you're not directing your key properly. They hide in the vagueness of the language they use, and in doing so, pass off their responsibility on the student to figure it out on their own. This behavior has always frustrated me, both as a student and an observer. I feel for the student who is told they are doing something wrong but given no helpful guidance for how to do it better. Granted, this is very much an old school method of teaching, but that doesn't mean it works terribly well or that teaching cannot be more constructive. I'm sure that there are other interpretations of key that I have not covered here. Really, the topic can be frustratingly confusing, especially when a good portion of the dialogue about key tends to be merely statements like, no, that's not it, but I can't explain it in a way that makes sense, but you're wrong. Such statements do not provide clarity. In fact, they only tell me that the person is confused, yet is trying to claim understanding themselves. Hopefully, I've given you some good things to think about as you try to sort out what key is, and probably more important, what key isn't. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods that I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There is a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.